And I want to begin this morning by just saying something, um, sort of a little personal testimony, I guess, about my experience over the years. One of the, one of the things that I have um, wrestled with is to know that week by week, there are people who sit in, in my church under the sound of my voice, who hear my preaching, who are orthodox theologically, who wouldn't disagree with me on the major tenets of the Christian faith, who follow fairly consistently a Christian worldview, who appear to be saved, who probably think they are saved and are not saved. That's a hard thing for a preacher to deal with. One of the things that Jesus says that sort of, I think, haunts every preacher who takes the scripture seriously is this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, do mighty works, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I think those are some of the most frightening verses that Jesus, frightening words that Jesus ever articulated. Later on in the book of Matthew, he talks about the wheat and the tares, this parable, to make the point that within the kingdom of God, within the physical, visible church of Jesus Christ, as it would exist down through the centuries, there will be what he calls wheat and tares. And the wheat and the tares will live side by side, side by side, the saved and the unsaved, the regenerate and the unregenerate, living happily within the context of the church the visible kingdom of God on earth. And they won't be distinguished and they won't be separated until the final judgment. Now, when he was telling that story, he was speaking about a weed, contrasting it with wheat. Uh, Bearded Darnell is the name of the grass that grows in the Middle East amongst wheat. And they are almost indistinguishable. You can't tell a bearded Dardanelle plant from a wheat plant until the harvest. Because at the harvest, the wheat becomes very obvious by its fruit. By virtue of the fact that there is fruit on the plant. The Dardanelle, the bearded Dardanelle, grows to maturity in the field. There's no fruit. That's why the Apostle Paul said things like this. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Test yourself, 2 Corinthians 13.5. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1.10 says this. Be diligent, work hard. Be intentional to make your calling and election sure. You see, the most important question that you will ever answer, the most important question that I will ever answer is this. Am I in Christ? Am I saved? Am I born again? Has that work of quickening and regeneration happened in my life or not? Is my faith genuine or is it counterfeit? The passage that Matt read for us a few minutes ago speaks about dead faith twice. 
in verse 17 and 25 and speaks about useless faith in verse 20. Dead, useless faith. Now James knows that this letter, this encyclical, will be printed and, not printed, copied and and sent to all of these churches scattered throughout Israel and in the Roman Empire where, where Jewish refugees are living. He knows that there are people in these churches who need to hear this message. And if there are people in the first century church who needed to hear this message, how much more true is it of us in the 21st century? He knows there'll be people listening to his words being read who are professing Christians but whose lives offer no proof. They claim to have faith but no fruit. Belief, but no authentic Christian behavior. And so as he begins this passage of scripture, he asks the question, two questions as a matter of fact, what good is it? What good is it if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? Can that quality of faith, can that kind of faith save anyone? And of course the answer is no. The answer is no. And so what he does in the rest of this passage, which is sort of the hinge of the book, it's sort of the core passage of the book, what he does is show us three evidences of counterfeit faith, three qualities of counterfeit faith, and then in the middle at verse 20, he sort of changes his focus and he says, now let me tell you what legitimate faith, living faith, useful faith looks like. And so we're going to do that. We're going to look at this passage of scripture and we're going to examine what dead, useless faith looks like. And the first thing is this. Dead faith will always be agreeable faith. So James paints a scenario and he says this. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith without, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So he knows that this scenario has probably been played out in a number of these churches to which he is writing. Remember, these people are Jewish refugees who have fled Jerusalem under intense persecution. They have run for their lives. The vast majority of them are poor. They are literally refugees. They don't have enough clothing. They don't have enough food. Some of the people in the church are quite wealthy in contrast. And there is a large gap between the rich and the poor. And so James has probably heard that this kind of thing is happening. Certain people are looking at others who are living very, very tough lives. They don't have enough clothing to keep warm. They don't have enough food to stay alive. And they feel bad. They honestly feel bad for these poor people. There's nothing in this passage that would indicate that the people who are being talked about are malevolent or cruel. These people look at these people who are disenfranchised, these misfortunates, and they feel bad. And they say, man, go in peace. I really hope that you find a meal. You know, I really would love it to know that you got warm clothing. There's nothing in this that would indicate that they are not genuinely that they're not genu- genuinely sorry for these needy people. 
And they're not genuine in their desire to see them at peace, to be blessed. But it never occurs to them to do what Jesus said they should do. It doesn't cross their minds, or if it does, they have some way to rationalize and justify not doing what they clearly should do in that instance. Dead faith often manifests itself in well-intentioned disobedience. And what I mean by well-intentioned disobedience is this. Dead faith will often affirm or agree with the virtue and the goodness of what God commands. It believes that staying together as a husband and wife is a good thing. Working at your marriage is a positive thing. It believes that being good to your neighbor is a good thing. Abstinence before marriage, it's a good thing. It willingly, eagerly embraces things like the Protestant work ethic, the golden rule, great. Honesty is the best policy. True. Dead faith will happily affirm the virtue of what Jesus commands, but will not embrace the necessity of obedience. Dead faith will happily embrace the virtue of what Jesus requires of us. but it will not embrace the necessity of, the, of obedience. Dead faith doesn't understand the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's eager to receive the blessings of Christ. It's eager to receive the blessings of grace, and it loves to talk about grace and forgiveness and heaven and all of the good things that God wants to pour into my life because after all, he loves me. and It's a wonderful plan for my life. I was told that when I got saved. And he's just all about blessing, pouring good things into my life. But this whole idea of picking up my cross every day and following Jesus, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not big on that side of the thing. That part of the equation just doesn't excite me. Dead faith is very agreeable. Dead faith is very comfortable in the evangelical context. Secondly, dead faith will be feelings-based. Well, now, what James does now is introduce a theoretical or a hypothetical conversation between two people on either side of this debate. One is defined as having faith and the other is defined as having works. And this is what the conversation sounds like. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So one person says to the other, one person who is demonstrating the Christian virtues in his life or her life, says to the person who says he has faith or she has faith but really doesn't, 
Show me your faith apart from works. If you can, if you you can demonstrate the legitimacy of your faith apart from works, please show me. But I will show you my faith by my works. And and James' point is pretty simply saying the same thing. The point that he's making initially is this. That works of obedience to Jesus and his word proves the legitimacy and the authenticity of our faith. It's not hard to see in the passage. But he's also sort of broaching this subject of workless faith. And remember, he calls this a kind of faith. A particular expression of faith. Now, it's illegitimate, it's dead, it's useless, but he still calls it faith. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, if one's faith isn't demonstrated by works, what else might one rely on to legitimize and justify our claim to be a man or a woman of faith? Like if, if our faith, if our claim to faith isn't underpinned by a transformed Christ-obeying life where we're picking up our cross daily and following him and living as much as we can passionately trying to be disciples of Jesus Christ, if our life isn't marked by that quality and we claim to have faith, what else might we place in place of faith, or in place of works, excuse me. And the answer inevitably is this, feelings. One person will say, I have faith and I will show you objectively proof that my faith is legitimate. Another person says, I have faith, but I don't have works, but I need something to show you. So what can I show you? If it's not objective, it has to be subjective. And if it's subjective, it is It's emotions, it's feelings. Today, our culture elevates feelings above above object reality, objective reality. And and I just, like it's all around us, but I was, I took my kids and my oldest grandson yesterday to see Joseph in the amazing Technicolor dream coat, which is an amazing kind of thing down at Ed Mervish's theater. I, I think my wife's seen it four times, I've seen it three times. The first time she dragged me, second two times it went volitionally because it was really good. But at the beginning song, when the, when the, when the, the curtain comes up, and I'm sitting with my little five-year-old grandson and his eyes are as big as saucers, this, this woman begins to sing this absolutely gorgeous song and she ends up with these words, you are what you feel. And I stood up and I said, that's wrong. No, I didn't. (laughs) But I wanted to. I wanted to. But that is the mindset of our culture. You are what you feel. If I feel like a woman, then I must be a woman. If I feel like a man, I must be a man. And our culture is bought into it. And anything that the culture buys into, what happens? It seeps into the church. And so we have people today 
When you ask them, when you notice that there's not a lot of genuine, authentic Christian work in their life, Christian behavior, you say, well, what would give you confidence to believe that you are in fact a follower of Jesus? What would give you confidence to believe that your faith is in fact legitimate? Well, I feel, I feel like a Christian. When the worship is being led and when, when Kenzie's singing in the tea, I just feel so close to God. My small group welcomed me and I just felt so embraced. And when, when the preacher preaches, I just feel so excited about what he's saying. And I have all these feelings that grip me. And so like, you know, Shania Twain, I feel like a woman. I can sing that song for a hundred years and it's not gonna make me a woman, right? Just because you feel loved, stimulated, edified, encouraged in the church doesn't prove anything about the legitimacy of your faith. Now let me say this, there's nothing wrong with feelings. Feelings are part of the Christian experience. You know what, what Paul says in, in Romans 8, that sometimes in moments of connection with God in worship and preaching, just when you're alone with the word, his spirit witnesses with our spirit and he tells us that we're children of God and that is an emotional experience. It's part of our blessing, part of our inheritance as redeemed children of God to feel the love of our heavenly father. but it doesn't demonstrate the legitimacy of our faith conclusively on its own. You see, the ethos of Christian worship, worship, the theology of grace, fellowship, preaching, all of this can stimulate all kinds of emotions and feelings. But as I said, feelings can't be relied on to give us confidence that our faith is genuine. And then he goes on, and I think to one of the most scary verses in all the Bible, Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. And so the third evidence of illegitimate faith, dead faith, useless faith, will be orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. And as I said, this is a scary thought. The demons believe orthodoxy. When Jesus was casting out demons, who was it that understood who he was? Luke 4, you are the Holy One from God. The demon knew. The demon knew. Believing Orthodox theology is not the metrics by which we determine whether we're saved or not. Because there is a vast gulf, a vast gulf between information and salvation. Now hear me again on this. Orthodox theology is critical to coming to faith. If you don't believe who Jesus is, you don't understand that he's the son of God, you don't understand the virgin birth, you don't understand what he did on the cross, you don't understand the resurrection, it's hard to believe, right? Belief, faith, trust, is all predicated in understanding the story of Jesus. But truth does not save us on its own. 
Giving intellectual assent to a list of orthodox theology doesn't save anyone. And so that should stop us in our tracks, I think, because if we just sort of step back and review what James has said, he's essentially said this, you can be orthodox theologically, and you can feel close to God experientially, and you can fit into the culture and the context of the church relationally and not be saved. And as I said, this should stop us in our tracks. It's why Peter says, be diligent, work hard at. Be diligent to make sure of his calling and electing you to eternal life. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Test yourself. So how do you do that? Well, in verse 20, James says this, he calls those people who want to believe in that kind of faith foolish. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So if, if we believe that we can be saved through orthodoxy, we believe that we can be saved through embracing a Christian worldview and feeling comfortable in the context of the church. We believe that we can be saved by our feelings and feeling close to God as we listen to worship music. If we believe that, then we are profoundly foolish. And by grace, God has given us through James three tests that allow us to, to determine the legitimacy of our faith. And the first one is this. Living faith trusts and obeys God. Living faith trusts and obeys God. And what he does in this passage of Scripture, he uses two Old Testament people whose lives demonstrate this conclusively. First, he talks about Abraham, and he talks about Rahab the harlot. So in verse 21, he says, Was not our father Abraham justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Now, Abraham, Abram, which means exalted father, was 80 years old approximately when God met him in Genesis 12, made promises to him. Genesis 15, he said, you will be the father of, of uh, many, many, a multitude. There's the stars in the heavens that, that you're going to be that kind of, your, your progeny will be that numerous. Now, remember, he's, he's Abram, exalted father, be married for decades, no kids. But he believed God. And God counted that to him as righteousness. He was justified by his faith in the word of God at about 80 years old, Genesis 15. Genesis 17, God appears to him a little while later and says, I'm going to change your name. From Abraham, Abram to exalted father, to Abraham, father of a multitude, father of nations. And Abraham continued to believe God. He and Sarah continued to have, try to have children. At 100 years old, Sarah was 90, they finally conceived by the miracle of God. And they had Isaac. Probably 12, 14 years later, God tests Abraham 
Genesis 22. I want you to go and take your son, your only son, the son of the promise, the son through whom these great promises that I've given you all through these last 25, 30 years, I want you to take him, take him and tie him to an altar on Mount Moriah, which is Jerusalem, plunge a knife into his heart and burn him as an offering to me. And Abraham obeyed God. He obeyed God. You see, the legitimacy of his faith was proven by his obedience to the commands and the leading of God. Now, just as an aside, when Paul in Romans 4 speaks about Abraham, he makes the point that Abraham was justified in Genesis 15 when God made a promise to him and on, on the basis of believing and trusting that promise, God counted Abraham as righteous. He made him justified. So when James says that Abraham was justified by works, we're going to look at it in a second, and not by faith alone, what he is saying is this. What he is saying is this, that Abraham's faith was justified by his works. Abraham's faith was legitimized by his works. The authenticity of his faith was vindicated or proven or justified by what he did. Abraham's claim to be a man of faith was shown to be legitimate by his works. And so it's important to understand that. Genesis, in uh, verse 22, it says that Abraham's faith was active and in fact completed by his works, was perfected by his works. His work of faith, sacrificing Isaac, proved the legitimacy of his being justified by faith. So how do we apply this to ourselves? How do, how do we use that story to examine our own lives? Well, we move forward 2,000 years to the, to the moment when God provided a lamb provided the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. On that same mountain, on that same place, Mount Moriah, God offered his only son as a sacrifice for us. The Lamb of God went to the cross at that same place, that same location where 2,000 years before, Abraham, the man of faith, was about to offer his son but just as he was about to plunge that dagger, God stayed his hand, provided a lamb, and told him that one day he would provide a substitute. 2,000 years later, that substitute, we know, was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. We look back to that day. We remember his sacrifice for our sins. We remember his substitutionary death. And we embrace it by faith by trust, by believing, by simply falling into the arms of the finished work of Jesus. And we are justified. We are absolutely and completely forgiven for all of our sins, past, present, and future. We rest in the fact that when God punished Jesus, he punished him entirely for my sin and yours. And we rejoice in that. And that gospel, 
that message impels, compels, draws out of us, transforms us, and causes us to live in a way that we would never otherwise have lived. When the gospel grips us, we begin to live what we authentically and honestly believe. When the gospel truly grips us, suddenly it's not just I'm so glad that Jesus saved me and I'm so glad that I'm going to heaven and I'm so glad that I have grace. It is, I am so glad of all of that and as a consequence of what Jesus has done for me, my heart has been so transformed that I want to go out and help that person who doesn't have food and doesn't have clothing. You see, the gospel must be a life-transforming experience in your life or you can't say with any confidence that you are saved. It must grip us. The gospel when it saves someone, Christ when he saves someone, the Holy Spirit when he redeems a soul, grabs us by the scruff of the neck and forces us to see the gospel, see the cross. He opens our eyes to allow us to see what happened that day. It breaks our heart and transforms what was dead and makes it alive. And our life can't be the same. Once you've seen it, your life cannot be the same. Listen, please, don't be fooled into thinking that since you prayed a prayer or signed the back of your Gideon Bible that you got 50 years ago in school when they still did that kind of stuff, because you love the feelings that you get in worship, because you were baptized, because you had some sort of weird experience, or because you believed the right things that you're saved. When God saves a soul, he changes his or her behavior. You're never made perfect, but the trajectory of your life is profoundly altered from self to others, from self to Christ, from self to his kingdom. So how do we know? How do we know that our faith is legitimate? The gospel grips us in such a way as to transform our life. The proof of our profession is the fruit of our faith. But secondly, we pursue a living intimacy with Jesus. There's a little phrase that James puts in here about Abraham, and he just simply says Abraham was a friend of God. And the word is, well, he says that because the Old Testament says it repeatedly, that Abraham is a friend of God. And what it indicates is that the intimacy, the closeness, the fellowship between God and Abraham was something that he reveled in. He was a friend of God. When you read the Old Testament, you read the story of his life, there was a sense of connection, a sense of relational connection. John 15, 15 says to us, I no longer call you servants, but I've called you friends. I am a friend of God if I'm redeemed. The gospel's gripped me and it's changed my life. God's my friend. And I am invited into an intimate, personal relationship with the God of the universe and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus was praying for his disciples and and by extension, when he was praying for us, he said this, John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, 
that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. The word know there isn't just simply an intellectual understanding. It's not a theological cognitive thing. It's a relational word. It's a word that means connection relationally. Real faith manifests itself in fellowship and in relationship with the God of Israel and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we're saved, we pray. We worship God. We're intimate with him. We cast all our burdens upon him knowing that he cares for us. When issues happen, we ask people to pray with us and for us because we know that we have a friend in Jesus. When we don't have anywhere to turn, where do we turn? We turn to him because he's our friend. That's, that's what it means. That's what happens. When the gospel grips us, we are changed. Our behavior is changed. But our heart, our affections, our longings, And then lastly, living faith chooses loyalty. In the same way, verse 23, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? He finishes here with a brief reference to the prostitute Rahab who welcomed the spies who had come from Israel into Jericho to figure out how the city could be destroyed. Now, Rahab was a prostitute, probably a um, cultic temple prostitute in the worship in Canaan. She was a sinner, a loyal citizen of Jericho. Jericho's king was her liege lord. Her people, its people were her people. She was fully immersed in the life and the values and in the worldview of Jericho. And then she changed her allegiance completely. Not partially, not somewhat. She threw her lot entirely in with the people of God. She risked everything in doing so. And her loyalty and her attachment to Jericho disappeared. She became a loyal, dedicated, devoted member of the people of God. She was all in. 100%, no holding back. Her worldview changed. Her allegiances changed. In time, she would become the great, 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 great grandmother of King David. So how do I know my faith is genuine? How do I know my faith is genuine? Am I all in? Am I all in? Or do I try to live my life with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom? Am I compromised? Do I love the world still? Am I passionate about what the world offers me? Or have I said, I have decided to follow Jesus and there is no turning back? Now I can't ask that question for you, but you know, you know where your allegiances lie. You know if your faith is compartmentalized. Well, on Sunday and on Tuesday night, I go to church in my small group, and that's my Christian thing. But then I have other things in my life where where really the gospel and Jesus and Christian virtue don't permeate. Is that okay? No, it's not okay. 
Because if you love the world, the love of the Father can't be in you. You can't serve God and money. Because you'll love one and hate the other. Like this is an all or nothing thing. You can't be 30%, 60%, 92% saved. You're saved when you change your allegiance and Jesus becomes Lord and Master. Now again, you, you don't become perfect, but you are passionate about being in Christ, following, living a life that would bring him glory and honor and praise. Allowing the gospel and the truth of the Christian life, allowing the Christian worldview to permeate every facet of your life. So Jesus and his virtue and his kingdom come to work and your desk becomes an outpost of the kingdom of God. Your marriage, your bank account, how you raise your children, everything that you do is impacted, is permeated by the truth of the gospel. You're 100% in. Are you all in? Are you all in? Are you holding back? You can't live in two camps. That's not living faith. It's dead and it's useless. James concludes with this thought, verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also, apart from works, faith is dead. So let me try to say this as gently and as clearly as I can. There is a possibility that in this room right now, there are walking corpses. And you are dead in your sins. You believe all the right things. You are orthodox. If someone was to say, do you believe in the resurrection? You say, yes, sir. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Absolutely. You love coming to church. You love these people. You feel a warmth, a sense of belonging here. And you love the Christian worldview because it makes sense. You love that thing by C.S. Lewis, right? I know that the sun is risen, not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else, right? Just Christianity makes sense of the world. But the possibility is that you are a walking corpse who may hear those horrible, horrible words someday, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And so my appeal to you simply is this. Let the gospel do its work. Beg God to quicken you. Beg God to let you see the gospel perhaps in a way that you've never seen it before so that it grips you in your guts. So that so radically changes your life. The love of God so profoundly impacts you that you begin to live, surprisingly suddenly, you begin to live a different life. Only God can do that. You can't. So beg him. Beg him to quicken you and rush into his arms. Develop a relational fellowship, friendship with Jesus. Pick up your Bible. Look forward to meeting with him. 
and live sold out for the kingdom of God. You can't. You can't on your own. I can't on my own. It must start with a heart transplant. A dead body has to be resuscitated. And if you're beginning to think that maybe my faith is not legitimate, get on your face before God because he is the one who breathes life into dead corpses. And just beg him. Beg him to save you. Beg him that he would show you the magnificence and the glory of the gospel that would change your behavior, change your affections, and change your loyalty. Let me pray for you. Lord, these are scary, sobering words from your word. And I would pray, Spirit of God, life-giving spirit of the living God, I pray that you would quicken hearts that are dead and don't know it. Do what only you can to raise to life those who are dead. And we will give you the glory and the honor and the praise. In Jesus' name.